Open your Bibles, if you will, to um, Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Our subject this morning is joy. To be joyous or to rejoice. And to be honest, it's a topic I've always felt a little awkward talking about. You know, how do you talk about joy, right? How do you... It's because I think we all instinctively know what it is to be happy, right? We all kind of know, I hope you've had at least one good bout of happiness in your life so you can understand what I hope so, wow. Um, but often in Scripture, when we're talking about joy, it's something that's instructed. In fact, it's very, very common. I didn't count the number of times in Scripture. But it's very common to be instructed, we're instructed, especially in the Old Testament, to be joyful or to rejoice. And I don't know about anybody else, but that always struck me as weird. Because that's kind of an emotive thing, right? And can you just like an act, if you will, be joyful? It's like the word picture that comes, or the visual that comes to my mind when you tell someone to be joyful, it's like when you have little kids and they won't eat, and you tell them that they should eat, and they don't want to eat. And then what do you do? You lay that big thing on them where you give them the whole list of countries where there are kids that you know, have enough food, right? And, you know, and it's true. I mean, that is tragic, problematic. We need to do what we can. We need to appreciate it. And yes, our children should eat. But does that approach ever work? Oh, yes, mom and dad. There are children in this country that don't have food, so I'll eat mine. It doesn't work, right? And that's talking to kids, adults, you know, or even harder to get to cooperate. So to talk about joy has always been kind of a challenge. Now, I understand, you know, there's times when it just comes naturally. That's great. That's great. Um, there's times when we're having a bad day and we've got enough uh, of our wits about us to go, if I can just amp it up a little bit and choose to be in a good mood, things will improve. That's great when that happens. But with Joy and Christmas, it's like we're putting it on the calendar, like you will be joyful the following weeks out of the year. And that just always struck me, again, a little weird. And so that was the, the framework I, I, I had as I was just looking through the text and looked at several passages of scripture this week. The idea of joy, especially when it's being instructed, right? How does, how does that work? How does, how does joy work that way? And so what I wanted to start with, because I think I found something that was helpful, at least for me, and so I'll share it. It's in the second chapter of Matthew. It's technically not a Christmas passage. It's a little bit after Christmas, but that's okay. So in Matthew chapter 2, uh, beginning in the seventh verse, now you may think this is a Christmas. It's actually a little bit after Christmas. The technical term is epiphany. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 7. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go make careful search for the child. When you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. And having heard the king, they went their way, and lo, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they came into the house and saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him and opened their treasures. They presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. And we are in, in, indeed, Father, a people blessed beyond measure. Father, it should be our natural response to the 
extraordinary blessings that you pour into our lives, especially in this country, Father, especially where we live, Lord. We should be um, overwhelmed with joy. And yet we know, Father, sometimes as people, Lord, our makeup being what it is, there's times when that just doesn't naturally happen. And then we're confronted by your word, Father, and we're instructed in some places to be joyful. And that is kind of a confusion, at least in, in my mind, Lord, how that works, Lord. How do I make my emotions a product of my will? How, do, how does that work, Lord? So I pray, Father, as we look at your word this morning, you're open our, our hearts and our minds. And I especially pray, Father, for those who in this particular season of, of Christmas are having a hard time, Father, uh, finding that joy that's supposed to be there. Help us, Father, as we look to your word, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Okay, so I think we all know the story pretty well. Um, the Magi, the wise men, I will probably slip and say three wise men at least once. Give me a break. We don't know how many there were, but I'll probably say that. I'm the product of the same culture of anybody else. Um, they were, what, they were counselors, astronomers, astrologers um, from the East. Right? They were the smartest guys in the room. That's a pretty good description of them. Um, their class, and that was a, it was a class, it was both an ethnic identity, it was a, there was an educational element, there was a professional element, it's a group of people. They were kind of passing out of existence, right? They were primarily identified with Persia, uh, which is important to this, uh, this story because that would have told us where they came from. They probably came from an area called Parthia, roughly corresponds to a part of Persia. The point being, they traveled a long ways. They've come an awful long ways, and um, they come because their observation of a particular star, um, what they de described as a star, it could have been a collusion of planets, there's lots, all kinds of theories as to what they saw, uh, led them to believe that a king had been born to the Jews, a very significant king. And we know that there's a great deal of significance here because they didn't make this trip every time a new king was born in Israel. This is a significant event for these, for these fellows. Uh, and they come to Jerusalem first. That makes sense. That's where you, know, you expect to find a, a new king of the Jews. Um, and they you know, show up at Herod's door. Herod finds out they're there. Uh, the whole situation is a surprise to Herod. He doesn't see this coming at all, which is significant. Um, and remember, he's already paranoid. Right. This is this is a, a murderous, totalitarian, a murder. This is a bad guy, right? And his reputation is known from one end of the empire to another, right? And uh, these guys show up, and they say, you know, we know there's a king of the Jews. Where is he? He doesn't have a clue. He consults his legal experts. They tell him it'll be in Bethlehem. And so, with the stated intent of you guys go find him and then come tell me so I can go worship this new king. He sends them on their way, which of course is totally disingenuous. The guy's a fraud. The thing I think that we want to keep mindful of is contrary to what we see maybe in a lot of dramatizations and films, I don't think those guys bought that at all, right? I mean, they know how the game is played. Like, they're the smartest guys in the room, right? They are royal counselors. They know how this thing works. And you tell a king oh, by the way, there's a new king in town. That's not good news, right? Especially to a guy like this, right? So I think they pretty well had a clue with what they were dealing at right, right from the beginning. Um, but after they heard this, verses 9 and 10, they went on their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. 
So what actually is, is going on here to get these guys so excited? And we'll talk about that as we go. Obviously, there's the birth of the Messiah, but there's another dynamic at work here that ends up with them doing what they do. And, and that dynamic is what, I, is what I observed this week and I, I'd like to share with you. And there's, there's three components in this dynamic, right? The first thing that I noted, just again, looking through this this week, was perspective. These guys have a perspective that other people don't have. They have a perception of what is happening. And then connected to that perspective, there's an investment they make. So they move from perspective to investment, and then there's a response, an action that follows as a byproduct of all that, the action of, of, of joy, the action of celebration. And that's what I want to look at this morning. So first, the whole issue of perception. Um, what got the wise men started in the first place? How did, what? They saw the star. They saw perception, the star. Now, of course, if you, if you look at the, you know, the commentaries or the scholarly stuff, there's all kinds of discussion, the exact nature of what that was. And I think the bulk of, you know, academic research now is it was probably a collusion of several planets. That's kind of the only way that works with what we know of astronomical data from that period of time. Uh, and the fact the star appeared to move and then stopped to move. Was, when you put all that together, what makes the most sense is it was a combination of stars and planets all hitting the same spot. It really, the detail really doesn't matter. What matters is they saw it, and whatever they saw would have been visible to everybody. There's nothing to indicate they had any advantage. You know, they had telescopes before there were telescopes, right? No, they, what they saw, they saw with the naked eye just like everybody else, but they had the perception to know based on, we don't know what, some biblical scholars have traced it back to Daniel because Daniel was once one of these guys, right? That Daniel, in, in the prophecies of Daniel, there were things that were said and that when Daniel taught them of Old Testament prophecies and scripture, there was something that was said that got these guys headed in that direction. So when they saw the star, they went, boom, that's really significant, right? The point is they saw looking at what everybody was looking at, they saw something that other people didn't see. Point being, perception. It's all about perception. Perception's a really big deal. Um, this is true of, um, well, one of the places that, that typically we associate perception with relative to this issue of joy and rejoicing is, is fans' response at, at an athletic event. Pick the sport, right? Any sport where you have fans present, you can have something happen on the field or on the ice or whatever, and the fans react, uh, right? What's fascinating is, especially if it's like on a neutral field or a neutral place, you have all these fans, something happens, and you have widely varying reactions, right? They perceive what happens differently, and everything that happens proceeds from that perception. Just a really quick example. Uh, if you're any kind of a baseball fan at all, you know about Kirk Gibson's home run in 1988. Uh, I won't go into all the details, but the Dodgers were never supposed to make the World Series. And when they got there, they weren't supposed to win. Oakland was supposed to slaughter them. And in the first game, it gets down to the bottom of the ninth. And they're only down by one run. And there's a guy on first base. And there's two outs. And Kirk Gibson, who wasn't even supposed to play in that game, he comes up to bat. And I'm standing there watching it on Ratnet. How many here remember Ratnet? 
Aaron, yeah, Rural Alaska Television Network, yeah. It was really special to get anything live on Ratnet, okay? And I'm watching the World Series, and it's the bottom of the ninth, and it's two outs, and it's a one-run game, and Kurt Gibson's at the plate, and Joyce is giving the kids a bath in the other room, and she calls me to come get Christopher. I'm like, are you out of your mind? Leave this? So I ran in and I grabbed Chris and she had them all bundled up and I ran back out and she was finishing Sophia's bath and just as I get back is when Gibson hits this incredible two-run home run and the Dodgers you know, walk off and they win the first game of the series and go on to win the World Series and I am yelling and I'm dancing around and I got Christopher in my hands. I can't do that anymore and I'm swinging Christopher back and forth and she comes back in like, my God, what is going on? Did you drop the child? Is the house on fire? Because my reaction was such that that was where she was thinking things were at. Total matter of perception. What had happened on television, no way in the world justified what she was seeing when she walked in the room. Total matter of perception. So perception is so important, right? Perception, wow, big deal. And we talk about joy. We talk about joy. Um, the joy that results from our perception tells us an awful lot about our perception, you know, about our mindset, right? We talked about grace a few weeks back. Interesting, the word grace, which is God's unmerited favor, when he blesses us out of no sense of obligation just because he wants to, that, is, that word shares the exact same verbal root as joy. So joy is a response to perceiving God's unmerited favor towards us you realize how incredibly blessed we are, not because we deserve it, but because God just loves us, you begin to see how important perception is, right? One of the things that a, the perception does as we start to move forward in this issue of joy is it moves us away from just emotion. Now, I don't think you can, you can separate joy and emotion completely. Some people think, some, I don't think you can, right? But when we begin to focus as an act of our will, we begin to focus our perception as an act of our will on kingdom things, kingdom priorities, who God is, what God has done, what God is doing, what God has promised to do. You start to think about those things as an act of your will that moves our mindset and affects our perception. We have a choice how we perceive things. And that's really this first step in moving into this area of, uh, of joy. It's not just a knee-jerk response to good news. Then the second thing, investment, right? The Magi came from the east. They made this really long trip. I do not know how long it took them. They were riding camels. That couldn't have been too much fun. Uh, and they came to Herod. Now, we don't think about this a lot. These guys took a risk going to Herod. They know who they're dealing with. They're dealing with a murderous, evil man. His murderous nature was legendary in the Roman Empire, okay? And they come in and they have talks. I'm absolutely convinced they knew he was just lying to him the whole time. But anyway, they head off to Bethlehem. They find the baby, and then they worship him. All of that is what? They're investing themselves. They invest themselves to stop whatever they're doing, in Persia, I have no idea what these guys did 9 to 5, but they stop that, they load up their camels, and they head off on what was probably a, roughly a 500-mile journey, and they risk coming into Herod's court, sharing with Herod news that he certainly did not want to hear. You don't know how this nutcase is going to react, 
And then they went off to Bethlehem and they worshipped the king. They found him. They worshipped him. Investment is so critical. The thing about investment is, based on our perception, we invest. That feeds back into, the, into our perception. The investment sharpens our perception. Uh, another, another really good example um, of sports, and my wife and I. Joyce just generally is not into sports. She just, that's just not something she responds to. If we ever do go to an athletic event, it's like she goes just for the going to be with the family. But sports itself, right there, right? That all changed with one thing. When her son went out on the ice. Yeah, when Christopher started playing hockey, I knew that, that, the, that the change from the Joyce I had known to hockey mom was going to happen. I just had no idea how fast. It took her like one game to figure out, you know, basically what's going on, and she was full bore, you know. If something happened out on the ice that she didn't approve of, everybody in the Brett Memorial Arena knew it. Man, she lit it up. Why? She was invested. She had an investment in what was going on, and she was not in the slightest bit bashful, shocker, about letting that be known, right? So these wise men, they make this heavyweight investment. And like I said, the really cool thing about investment, it is reciprocal, right? If we're talking about something we value, we invest in it. And the more we invest in it, the more we value it, right? And Jesus said that. He said, Mark chapter 6, Luke chapter 12, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What we invest in, our emotions follow. It's like a lineal equation, right? It's not a should be, not a may be. He states it as a matter of fact. Where you invest your treasure, there will your heart be. And it doesn't matter if it's, if it's actual physical you know, assets or treasure or if it's just your emotion. An emotional investment can be as powerful as a monetary one or any other kind of investment. Where you're invested, your heart goes. And so there's a reciprocal relationship between perspective, which expresses our worldview, and our investment, right? Okay. Then we have the emotive or physical response, right? Verse 10, when they saw the child, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. There's a redundancy and a fairly unusual grammatic emphasis here. This was not like, oh, great, we found him. No, the, the grammar suggests they got off their camels and they did their best Zorba the Greek thing, right? That's what comes, I mean, they were dancing. The word means to move in a circle. They were, these guys were getting really, really happy, right? Over the top, right? And then in verse 11, they enter the house. They see the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshiped him. Worship, again, result of, it's just the whole joy, worship connection. Their perspective the investment, they come to the place, they find the child, and opening their treasures, they presented him the gifts. The wording suggests they had brought the most valuable stuff they had and might not have known what they were going to offer for gift until they got there. They open up their treasures. These would have been the, the boxes or the bags or whatever they kept stuff in, right? And they, they give it to them, right? It, this investment becomes an act of worship, becomes an act of joy. Again, that verse, that what Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This may be one of the most informative verses in Scripture for us, trying to move from joy that just happens because something really good happened and I'm happy, to actually deliberately focusing on things that are important, that influencing my perspective, what I see in life, 
and then I invest as a response of that, and then finally I experience biblical joy. It's pretty, pretty simple observations, I think. Um, but let's talk for a moment about applying that, that paradigm, if you will, or, or model, these three steps. Three things I observed from the biblical text about stepping into real joy that's not just a byproduct of our emotions. And nothing wrong with that, by the way. I don't want anything I say to suggest there's anything wrong with being really happy when something really good happens. Nothing wrong with that. But we don't want to be dependent on. That's the point. We don't want to be dependent upon circumstances. Um, first thing I would note is that the call to rejoice is usually corporate. We don't do that a lot in our Western mindset. The call to worship is usually corporate. The call to worship is usually, is usually almost always in Scripture, focused on something. There is a something. And then thirdly, the call to worship or the call to rejoice is a part of something bigger. It's not just that. It's part of something else. So first of all, the call to rejoice is frequently, if not usually, corporate. Again, that doesn't minimize when something good happens and you're all by yourself and you can get happy about it. It's not minimizing that. all. That's a real blessing. But in, in the text... The majority of references, especially when we're talking about being told to rejoice, um, are corporate. You go back to the Levitical and the law, Deuteronomy, and all the feasts. What do all the feasts say? You shall rejoice. And those are talking to the corporate body. The whole nation was to, you know, get happy. The whole nation was to rejoice together. It's, I, again, I didn't count the number of times, but it's repeated over and over and over again in the law. And the connection between gathering and, and, and rejoicing and a feast, food is a big deal, right? Getting together, having a big party, having a grand time. Instructed, the Lord gave them that instruction. And that in, continues into the New Testament, that idea of God telling his people to corporately rejoice. Okay? How many of you know where the book of Philemon is? If you could find it, and without using the, the well, that's the wrong way to put that. If you would like to turn there, fine. Otherwise, don't worry about it. It would take, I would have to use the table of contents too. Uh, Philemon chapter 4, uh, this very well-known verse, Rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice. If you've been around a long time, you remember that chorus we used to sing that went on forever and ever and ever, right? Rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice. Here's the amazing thing about that verse, right? And I apologize for suggesting you didn't know where Philemon was. You just, I don't know exactly where it is. I think we have somebody looking for it this time. When Paul is writing Philemon, Philemon is, is a leader in the church, and he's going through a long list of specific, specific things he wants Philemon to do. That's my payback for suggesting you didn't know where Philemon was. Yeah, um, the, he has this list of things he wants Philemon to do, and, and that's all individual. You, Philemon, you. I'm talking to you, Philemon. But when he gets to verse 4, and he starts talking about the rejoice element, he goes plural all of a sudden. What's he saying? Philemon, i got all these things I want you to do, but hey, everybody else, you all worship. It's spoken with the same force as the individual instruction to Philemon. Instruction for the corporate body to worship. It's really critical, and it's also helpful when we do this. Remember back in 1 Corinthians 12 when, when Paul said, if one member suffers, all the members suffer. If one member is honored, everybody rejoices. 
when we engage in, in the corporate aspect of this, we are strengthened. We are not intended to suffer alone. If you're having a bad time, you call somebody to pray for you, or you should. When you're rejoicing, you should bring other people into it. That's the nature of the corporate body. That's why our testimonies are so important. Because you're having a rough time, and God is not showing up. And God, this is not good. And then somebody else can stand up and say, you know, I was having a bad time. And it, it's really important, too, when you're giving your testimonies to give all the, not 20 minutes, but when you're saying God really showed up in a great way, it doesn't hurt to point out that I was waiting for two years for this to happen. Right? Because that reminds others that, yeah, when I'm in a difficult spot and God hasn't shown, oh, yeah, that person had this tremendous blessing, but they had to wait some time for it, too. Right? We're encouraged, and it, it brings a joyous mentality. It helps in the perception, the whole thing, right? And that's not new. That's not new. Um, Isaiah said, be joyful with Jerusalem and rejoice for her, all you who love her. Be exceedingly glad with her, all you who mourn for her. You guys mourn for Jerusalem together. You will worship together. You will rejoice together, right? Not called to suffer alone, not called to rejoice alone, right? All the way through the, this issue of perspective, investment, and response, the corporate aspect reinforces it. And we're called to be focused in our rejoicing. Marvelous little word, putty. Putty. Professor back in Bible college said, wash off with the little words. Putty, it means that. Not like, that was wrong. It doesn't mean that like that. It means like when Jesus said, do not rejoice. Remember his disciples came back and they'd been kicking demons out of people? And they were all really happy. And Jesus said, do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written down in heaven. He was very specific. Your joy should be a product of the understanding that your names are written in heaven, right? So important. When we are celebrating, to, to focus on why we're celebrating for a couple of, of different reasons. One, it frees us from legalism, right? I know that there are some folks in our fellowship, they come from a very legalistic background and how, how painful that can be and how destructive that can be and how when you're told as a young Christian, you should rejoice because you should rejoice and even if you don't feel like rejoicing, you need to rejoice because the Bible says rejoice. And how productive is that? That just makes you feel guilty because you don't feel like rejoicing. So now you have the guilt for being disobedient and, you know. So, but when we say we should rejoice that, and we have a reasonable thing to focus on, that our names are written in heaven, right? Or something as worldly as rejoice that you have a house to have a water leak in, right? That's about as worldly as you can get, right? But it's still helpful. It's still helpful. Rejoice that. Focus, focus your rejoicing. It also frees us, so it frees us from legalism. It also frees us from slavery to our emotions. I just don't feel like being joyful today. Well, stop and think for a couple of minutes all that you have to be joyful for and then give, you know, thanks for that. It's a very powerful little word, right? So first it was corporate. Second it was focused. Thirdly, it's part of something bigger. All of those feasts in the Old Testament when God said, come together and rejoice, there was other things going on. You were rejoicing because you've been delivered from Egypt. You were rejoicing because God had been with you in the wilderness. You were rejoicing because God had brought you in the land. It was part of a bigger picture, right? Nahum, 
chapter 1, verse 15. Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feast, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He's cut off completely. When Nahum spoke, things weren't good. But he says, rejoice anyway. Rejoice in all those feasts. Keep in mind the big picture. Ultimately, what you're suffering now is over. And of course, he's prophesying of the Christ, right? The feasts themselves were to be celebrations. I think one of the reasons we struggle with the idea of being told to celebrate a feast, to get happy about a feast, is we're so focused on being happy all the time. Our culture is all about happiness, right? What do you want for your kids? I want them to be happy. No, I want them to be godly. Because if they're happy now, but not godly, down the road, they won't be happy. But if they're godly now, whether they're happy or not, they will be happy down the road, right? So our society is so geared to being happy that when we're told to be joyous, it just doesn't kind of resonate. We're not talking about that kind of culture in Scripture. They were normally consumed with surviving. You know, agrarian culture, you're one bad crop away from famine. Serious stuff. So for God to be able, for God to come into this heaven and say, you have my permission to have an extravagant party. That's good news. It wasn't just a command to rejoice. It was encouragement to rejoice. It was divine privilege to rejoice. That changes our perspective a little bit. That's part of seeing it, again, in the bigger picture. That's why the meals we share at the time of celebration are so important. So, this is kind of the whole thing. It begins with getting the right perspective, a kingdom perspective. Uh, it's an act of the will. It goes to investment, investing based on that perspective. And then that cyclical thing comes where our investment goes back and sharpens our perspective. And then it ends up in the response of joy and worship. It shows up best in corporate worship, although it's not, it's not limited to that. Uh, it causes us to focus our thoughts and our desires in the right direction. Celebrate that, right? And then there's something to celebrate. And then it reminds us of the bigger picture. Uh, there's more than just what I'm doing right now, more than what I'm feeling right now at stake, right? In application, it doesn't have to be complicated. It really gets simple. It really gets simple. Um, it's as simple as the person outside the store, you know, with the, with the bell. Um, if, if you've been here for long, you know that's a, a big deal for me. I have a matter of discipline. I don't walk by them, ever. I put something in the pot every time. Uh, and that's for my own benefit. And, and, and here's why. When they're ringing the bell, what are they doing? They're getting your attention, right? I, you may, if you're like me at all, you know um, I'm in and out of the store as fast as I can, right? Unless it's a sporting goods store, totally different dynamic. But if it's a grocery store or a any other store but a sporting goods store, I am in and out as fast as I can, right? Because I've got a thousand things on my mind. But as I'm hitting out, I hear that ding, 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 ding. Oh, yeah, that's right. It is Christmas. Even if I'm shopping for Christmas, I still forget that it's Christmas, right? You know, you know what I'm talking about. But when I hear that, I remember, oh, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. That's why this time of year is important. So that, that bell from the, from the Salvation Army person, and if you haven't seen the new Salvation Army commercials on TV, they are great. Yeah, it's, I think it's the guy that's in charge. I don't know. But he's saying, by the way, in case you don't know it, the Salvation is all about the Word of God. Salvation Army is all, we believe one thing, and that's the Word of God. 
and everything we do is out of that. And the reason we do what we do in the holidays is because we want to love people in accordance with Scripture this time of year. It's great. But you hear the bell, and he's ringing. Now he has my attention, and then, of course, there's an investment involved, right? It's not much. It's like a buck in the pot. But what does that, when does that investment actually start? Well, if I have a brain in my head, I plan that investment when I'm at the checkout counter. Because it's really frustrating to get to the salvation bell ringer and have your hands full. What do you do? You know, you've got to find a place to put the bags down so you get your wallet out. There's never a place to put your bags down. So I have to start thinking in advance while I'm checking out to make sure I've got maybe even got it between my fingers or something, right? Because it's really important to me. That guy's going to get my attention. This is an important time of the year. This is a time to celebrate the things of God. We're talking about Christ's birth. I need to be mindful of that. So I hear that. I put, and then, most important part, most important part, eye contact with the bell ringer. Make, how many have ever done that job? It can be mind-numbing. For like, what, two, I did like a two-hour thing, right? It is. It's mind-numbing. Until somebody reacts to you, eye contact, right? So you make eye contact with the bell ringer. Thank you so much for doing that. I really appreciate what the Salvation Army does, and I appreciate your sitting here. And you, know, you put it, and then they say thank you, and they say Merry Christmas, and you go to your service. It takes like 30 seconds for some quality interpersonal time. The point is, when I get in my vehicle, I get in the vehicle in a different frame of mind because of that 30 seconds interaction. I have shared, you know, the whole Christmas thing with another human being, and that impacts. My perspective. And the truth of the matter is, the next person I interact with gets a better me because of my interaction with the bell ringer. If I do it right, I make that interpersonal contact, right? So I've gone from perception to investment to response in the simplest way. That, I think, is how simple it can be to respond to the instruction to rejoice. Father, I thank you for your word, Lord. Um, Father, we, we are so occupied with all of our stuff. It's the job. It's the family. It's Christmas itself, Lord. And we get so wound up in it, and we can really get stressed. And I'll follow, be the, I know I admit, Father, it happens to me so much. Lord, but I thank you that in your word, we have a very clear reminder. We have direction that we need to be joyous, Father. And it might require a changing in our perspective, right? It's going to require some investment, Lord. It's going to manifest itself, we know, in the spirit of joy and happiness within our heart, Lord. Father, you it's no accident that you call us, you direct us to be joyful people. Father, help us simply to have the wise, be like the wise men, Father, to be wise enough to do it. For our benefit, the benefit of all those around us, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together this morning.